Fathers Who Bother is made possible in part by the contributions of listeners like you. To support Fathers Who Bother, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash fathers who bother and become a monthly subscriber today. On the next episode of Fathers Who Bother, I talk to producer and director Justin Rhodes about his powerful new film, It's a Wonderful Plight, why his beat still ain't free, giving birth to an 808 and raising four girls. Check it out. Welcome to Fathers Who Bother, a podcast for men who are dad as we want to be. My next guest is an award-winning music producer, educator, and filmmaker from Dallas, Texas. As a record producer, he has worked with everyone from Dr. Dre, Lecrae, The Game, Tyler Kweli, Black Thought, and more. And in 2016, he dove into the world of film and TV, creating the web series These Beats Ain't Free, as well as publishing a book by the same name and the reality TV show for producers House of Beats. But today he's going to talk to us about this brilliant new film, a hip hop musical called It's a Wonderful Plight and his role as a father to four girls, y'all. Please welcome (laughs) Justin L. Rhodes to the podcast. Hey, thank you for having me, my brother. I really appreciate you. Thank you for being here, man. Yo, Heads Up, Eyes Open was a beautiful, beat that was one of them they used to call it gospel delic <laughs> yeah yeah and digging into like your production discography made me realize how far i strayed from my producer roots and you know i'd have definitely had you in scratch had scratch been around Man, I, wish, <laughs> ooh, I wish i wish we could turn back the clock with like, i know uh, like i 12, know 13 years that's cool just well, to like know that you. means a lot yeah, for sure. But like you, I pivoted to covering film. So what inspired your move from production to, to filmmaking? Well, um, I would say, um, just to clarify, still, it's not a, a move per se, not to even try to correct you or whatever. I always right. want to let people know that mm-hmm. um, it's an elevation because I'm always a music producer, mm-hmm. got some records coming out with your favorite artists still, et cetera. So it's not like mm-hmm. a mass exodus mm-hmm. as much as it's an elevation. And film to me, like I, I just looking at the game and it wasn't as empowering as I would like it to be because mm-hmm. as successful as I was on the outskirts, people would look at it. It's still something when you have so many other talents and facets in which you want to express your art. When you're a music producer in today's industry, when, you know, uh, at least 70 percent of the time you're not in the studio with the artist creating like, you, you know, thought it would be you're sending beats. They love them. And then they say they're going to use them and then you wait for the album to drop. It's just a big waiting game. And as much as I love it and I still going to do it, I had to like start using other parts of my art to be able to can control things like with film. I think it fully expresses everything I can do in my artistry and the message that I write comedic time and, you know, the aspects of storytelling. And then you can score the film and use your fi- your music in the film uh, as well. And when you have that package, you can shop it. And now people can go on Amazon and watch your film and you can get your ideas out in a big package that way. Whereas as much as I love production, um, the situation I was in, it was a blessed situation, but it was a situation that I outgrew. So uh, film is something that I think I can con- continue to grow in and grow in uh, for the for the entirety of my career. And I'm still um, still I'm sorry about that. Uh, and I'm still forever in the day. Uh, at the end of the day, the core of everything I do is based in music production, because I think that's my most dynamic talent. I know. So the music in the film is all original creations from you. Yes, I produced probably uh, all of the songs, except for maybe one. And um, you know, um, either I, pr- I produced or wrote uh, pretty much every song in the film. 
or score, you know, even with the scoring aspects. Yeah, I tried to Shazam that first one because it was a heager, and I was like, "Who is this?" Yeah, it's, a, it's an artist name, uh, named Saba the Goddess. She she hasn't dropped that that song yet, but that's that's, that's a okay. project that. Yeah, I, I'll uh, text you or contact with you or okay. give you the info on it once that drops. But yeah, okay, okay. I was like, well, I gotta know who this is. So this film, bro, I, I I got literal chills watching it, and it feels super duper timely. Just so y'all know, for the we're, we're recording this um, two days before Juneteenth. Um. And I feel like the conversations around it are a little bit complex because you have corporations who are running to now jump on the Juneteenth bandwagon the same way they did with Black History Month and Pride Month. And it, it feels in a lot of ways very performative, yes. um, especially when at the same time you have states like your home state of Texas passing legislation to make it elite to, to ban discussions of race in the classroom so you it, once again in the purest american way you have one hand not knowing what the other hand is doing and i'm i feel really privileged to be able to talk to someone from texas today of all days who put out such a poignant film about race and race relations um talk to me about what inspired making this film and how you went about putting it together well it, it's funny let's to, uh attack first things that you say nobody greg abbott and his minion down here in texas man just um man it's 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 it, it's horrible just you know just to try to you know keep it clean <laughs> but <laughs> but like you said just just to speak on the performative things that's the same thing with you know our character in the movie i'm gonna get to your question but I just got to speak on my frustrations with certain mm -hmm. things. Like nobody asked for Juneteenth to become an official holiday to them. It's cool, you know, if, if people get a day off or whatever, that's cool. But Juneteenth in itself, as much as we celebrate it, it's something that shows that black people, you know, in the state of Texas too, we've made a positive out of the negative. Juneteenth is really, as much as we love it and celebrate it, it has a slightly negative connotation when you think about finding out that you're free later. So we just celebrated just because that's what black people do. So you have this holiday, but nobody said we need to make it an official holiday because it was always official to us anyway. We rocked with it. We didn't care if they rocked with it or not. But what we are asking for is reparations. What we are asking for is for things to be taught to our students in these schools that you send us to. But they make the executive decisions to take away the things that we really want. And I think uh, it's uh, pacifistic allyship. Like they want to pacify us saying, oh, well, look what we did. We made this an official holiday. Nobody's rocking with it. And nobody really rocks with Greg Abbott either. And you can quote me on that. Like, so it's just, it's, 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 it's whack, you know? And so, um, you know, being right from here and being in the midst of so, so much of that, I do have the uh, platform to really speak on it because I'm in the midst of it. But getting to film and how to film is so timely, like, in 2019, we were in the American Black Film Festival for a song in a movie called Make It, Take It. And just short story long, I was just like, man, we were around Black Hollywood. It was just so inspirational. I was like, man, I want to come back to this film festival and win an award. You know, not that an award is everything, but I was like, man, I think we can really make our mark here. So I was like, we're going to do an entire musical based off those type of songs, you know, whether it's about melanin, gentrification, just really kind of making it like schoolhouse rock of sesame street for adults you know that's that's kind of what the songs are based in so we wrote a script script around that and um 
man, once I wrote the script, I probably wrote it in about a week and some change. And I don't recommend this, but there was no rewrites. It just felt right to me. I was like, man, we wrote it good enough to make it pop. Uh, April Patterson, the film's producer, got to work, um, you know, found a lot of dope artists that really, you know, understood the mission. And we got to it. So we, we shot it in about five and a half days. And the thing wow. about it, COVID came and it kind of, in essence, slowed us down. But it really was God pushing us the way we needed to go. We got real creative with it during COVID. Did a lot of drive-in uh, movie screenings. It was really to prove the concept because we didn't leave one of those screenings without people going crazy or, you know, honking and just really saying that this film was everything that it's proven to be. So, yeah, that's 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 kind of how the, how the film came to be, man. And it was a lot of God's timing and place and stuff where it needed to be to make the message timely, like you say, um, because the main thing that we were kind of inspired by then was the uh, death and the murder of Botham John. And by the time the film came out, it was so many other names. It was George Floyd. It was my Aubrey, you know, um, a Tatiana Jefferson, like right down the road in Fort Worth. And that's just how uh, it goes with us. As timely as the message is, it will always be timely because the cycle always repeats itself. So I'm I'm trying my best not to spoil any of it for people listening. You need to see this movie. You have to go and watch this movie. But it's like the way you open it. Talk to me. You describe it as it is. It's a wonderful life meets Hamilton in a way. Yeah, meets Hamilton meets a Christmas Carol or something like that. Right, right. And the way that it starts with this conversation between two white guys playing video games. And, and then you bring it all full circle later is just amazing to me. Um, how do you think all the people are going to react to the issues that you're, you're raising about allyship and, and yeah, you know, about allyship in America? I think from the experiences, because uh, one thing that I really even told my producer and everybody, they, you know, they were kind of like, hey, they wanted to be more inclusive in essence. You know, they were just like, hey, well, you know, we may not want to accept this group. We, I just didn't care, to be totally honest. I was like, this is a film. We're going to tell it how we want to tell it. This is our film. If people want to get down with it, it's cool. Like, I think it's a lot of films out there that appease, you know, uh, white Americans. And that's just what they are here for. It's always an aspect of, uh, you know, uh, trying to appease. And that's not what this film did. So Aria, so the responses have been great because I think, and I'm, um, man, in so many interviews I say this, but I can't think of a better analogy. <laughs> like this is about the umpteen time I said it, but it's really like, I, I think the responses will be positive because what we did was sneak the, the dog's medicine in his dog food in essence. Like, you know, when you, you give them something that they want, mix it in with something they need and they get everything. Um, the, the, the dog food was the hip hop music because you know, people love beats. Like, that's what I really come to find out. Like the 808 or the baseline. And it's just something about rap and hip hop beats that just captures everybody. It's like musical, it blends everything. And so that is just the captivating part, but embedded in that is a message telling people, you know, about allyship, how they should view it, what really needs to be done. And I think, it's one hand washing the other to have a positive response. So every response that we have have gotten, whether it's been from black people, white people or whatever, it, it has been positive. I'm not saying that, you know, everybody review it that way. But I think anybody that wants to make a difference, whether they're black or specifically whether they're white, we, the people that we're targeting 
are those people that are not lost <laughs> or not trying to be lost or the people mm-hmm. that actually have a chance to be an ally. So the, the target audience uh, will will receive this very well. And, and we can actually start getting some positive change going in that direction. How do you feel about American history discourse being outsourced to Hollywood? Because I feel like mm. we're we're seeing like, with the, for example, with with Watchmen, the discussion about Tulsa exploded because of a TV show. Because mm-hmm. this history just isn't being taught. And then we're seeing it, you know, with even though people complain about them, I think they're still necessary. The slave narratives that come out, mm-hmm. the Barry Jenkins new show, The Underground Railroad, um, your film, like, what what does it mean that it takes visuals <laughs> to get people to really Man. understand these things it's um it's just how we're wired we're uh it's vibration we're, we're vibrational people you can preach to somebody at nauseum and tell them facts but that's just it's something about us arts has always um catapulted or set the movements of fire whether you know it's been music or something so it is something about uh saying it in an artistic way that gets gets the point across. I, I can't really specify as to why other than the obvious. It's just like people love music and music really kind of gives you a feeling to go along with that. Because I think if you're just giving people words, that's just dialogue. There's no feelings. But when you do the visual art and then you encompass uh, the lyrics and the music and everything together, it's almost like not only does the person hear it, but they feel it. And it uh, magically, because music is a form of magic, it takes people to a place that it takes them there more than more than just saying it like you can say, hey, we went through X, X and X and X. But if you make a song about it, you know, you know, put a little something extra on it. And people are captivated to walk, uh, watch it. It it, uh, it does create a, a form of magic to where it connects more. And so that's what the arts do. And that's why the arts catapult and uh, set movements of fire. So towards the end of the film, the narrator says um, we're seen as kings and queens nurturing our young fathers who are present. Um, so tell me about when you found out you were going to be a dad for the first time. Man, it was, um, I was, was I, I was 23. That's my oldest child. I have four daughters. My oldest daughter is uh, 14 now. And so almost 15, she turns 15 in uh, January. So, um, but man, it was, it was scary because at that point, you know, um, I wasn't married and I had, you know, my mother, it was just, you know, everything had to be perfect, but it wasn't. But I thank uh, God for some of my friends that really just, you know, walked me through it. And it was a very tough, tumultuous process leading up to it. But I just remember, just to be candid, I was in a hospital um, alone in the sense of my family representation. Mm. Um, to be to be totally honest and candid, I have a wonderful family, but I'm just, you know, this is a podcast where I can be candid. And it was a lot of things that during my first child I had to walk along with um, because whether people, you know, mainly my mother just wasn't, you know, accepting of it or whatever. I wasn't there by myself, but I just remember when um, <clears throat> my first child was born and I just remember just the feeling of it. And I saw it. I remember, you know, it was the whole movie aspect, crying, you know, the, the slow tear rolling down my face. And my life was forever changed, you know. And um, man, so it, it it really does change you. I remember, you know, it was aspects, you know, even though, you know, we all have to grow. It was selfish aspects of me back then that I couldn't even envision having, a, you know, not a 
child, let alone a girl. I really wanted a boy, you know, and I thought the world ended when it was a, a girl. Oh, my, you know, all this stuff. But uh, my children are my driving force for everything I do. And yes, Savannah, Savannah Layla Rhodes, my, my first child. I remember the scaredness and the shock of it and everything. And I remember the road of walking alone and being scared to tell my mother. I didn't tell my mother for many, many months because I just knew, you know, was, they love my mother. That's not, you know, I'm just letting you know the real of it. But when she came, I, I held my own and I stood up and I was there and I've been there ever since. And I'm not perfect by any means. But for all of my, uh, my kids, I'm there and I love them. And they they are the driving force behind everything I do. So you mentioned your you said your mother wasn't accepting, but you were twenty three. It's not like you were. A I was twenty three. I was twenty three. You it's you my were a teen just, dad. You know. I, was, <laughs> hey, I, I think what was her I, her what her, helped me because my mother I have a different and mind you what helped me and that really helped me because like you said I was twenty three. You know and um I just started really and it's that really that moment and start growing into my fatherhood helped me growing my music because it's the same thing even with my music you know um it took plaques it took a lot of things i think honestly even though my family my mother said they seen plaques and all this other stuff i think with this movie it's something about this this movie that my mother watched it all the way through and she loves it it's almost like after 38 i've been uh on it for so long they finally finally really see the magnitude of it but getting back to my child like it just that helped me to learn that i need to walk my own life and and I'm not going to be perfect. And that's OK. And I think that really helped me come into my own with. Really, I think once I got over the fact of not caring what my mama thought, you know, certain things and, and what my family thought, really not caring about that. It helped my artistry. It helped me as a human being and it helped me as a father. It really helped me in life when I really let go of living for other people, you know, to be totally honest. Where were you career wise at the in this moment? At that, year? It was early. Um, I still was. Uh, I don't want. I was honing my production skill. You know, I still was an artist. Like I say, artistry came first, then production, but I was really honing it. I was deep in it, deep, like, as far as the learning curve part, like, really like, okay, this is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna chase it. I had left school, uh, a couple of my business partners. We were young, but we we were some of the first young kids in Dallas to start a music studio. Um, we were deep in it. I still was working at DFW Airport at that time. Um, I just had got the job there. You know, I was working once I realized I had a daughter and I, as good as I was at music, it wasn't paying the bills then, but I was working my nine to five. I go to my studio and um, yeah, I, I was deep in that ascension uh, uh, in my music career as far as like really the come up. It was the the beginning of that come up phase is where I was at career wise. You, you, you mentioned that it affected, you know, how you recorded, how exactly did having a daughter affect your artistry? Man, I went, I think arti artistic wise, I, I, I did go harder as far as, and man, I will say, because it's funny because I don't have, I love all my kids. They are different. I don't, I wouldn't say I have a favorite. You know, some people even go to their point to say that I don't, I love them all equally, but I would say Savannah was unique for the simple fact with her being, you know, my first child. I remember I, in my single father apartment, I had like a, Almost like it was almost now that I look back at it, it was it was excessive. It was like a shrine in her honor almost. It was crazy, it was like pictures everywhere. It was, it was, you know, that I look back at it, it was wild. But um, you know, just even in the content of my music, it was more positive. I would make songs about daughters and and a lot of positive things. And even in my production, it, it was it was honed a little. I think I looked at stuff more deeply 
it, it used to be even um, artistic wise, it was way more surface level, but just her presence in the earth made me kind of look at things more, more deeply and with more color. So how were you adjusting to, to fatherhood initially? Like that you get, you got the baby home. What was a day in the life like for you? My man, like now I'm a, I'm a vet at all the stuff, whether it's diaper changing and it's nothing, nothing to me. I've had so many kids, but the first one was, it was, it, it was an adjustment, man, because before that I didn't, you know, didn't like to hold babies cause you know, they'd be so whatever. But I used to, I, I remember rushing home to see her and, 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 and hold her and all that stuff. And a, a day in life was, was f- with Savannah. It, w- it was pretty uh, hectic. I know I had a nine to five, so I would have to go there and then I would have a tr- to travel. Cause me, me and me and her, Savannah's mom was together for a little bit. I, I'm gonna say about a year or some change after she was born. So it was, um, it was, it was, it was tough though that, that it was, it was rewarding, but it was tough, you know, mm-hmm. um, because it was a lot of learning curves and, I think that was at the time to where I was young and more, you know, I was set on my career, but I was more immature relationship wise mm-hmm. in the sense of, you know, I saw a lot of things that I didn't like and, and they were valid, but I was gone a lot, you know, um, I would work and then I would pursue my dream and then I come, you know, just in time to, you know, put the baby to bed and do things like that. So it, it was, it was a big adjustment due to the fact that even though my you have this career that's your baby and then once you have your baby your baby is here but you still have to put those same hours into that career and it becomes real tough and and, and then you 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 kind of don't want anybody to challenge that because you know your end game even you know savannah's mama at, at that time she didn't see the end game and she became to me it's like how you don't see the end game i'm doing this for my daughter i'm like how can you not if you don't see it then you must not be for me but it's more like growing in the maturity to, to know that, you know, um, to, to really just make sacrifices that are fair. And a lot of times musicians, you gotta have people working with you as a musician and a producer because there's so many hours that it takes. But at the same time, you have to learn how to give a little bit too as well, you know? And as much as you love, love your child, you still have to find that balance, that balance that some people say you never find, but you're still seeking, but you just really have to make it as fair and balanced as possible. So that, that uh, it was a big learning curve for Savannah. And when um, me and her mother separated, having her, you know, on, on my weekends and still trying to adjust. Because my first child, she had a weird sleeping schedule. Mm. Um, she didn't go to bed till like two. It was so odd. She did not go to sleep. And it was just weird, man. But um, she's but having studio it, hours. <laughs> man, she, she had those hours because I think her mother had a job that she got off of late. So she didn't, she was like, oh, well, I want her to see me when I come home. And we would argue. I'm like, well, nah, you know, y'all need to figure that out because, you know, as a, anyway, but at the end of the day, when I got her, I got those repercussions too. But it was cool. Me, me, me and Savannah, we, in some ways, even though I was older, when I had her, we did um, initially, especially in them times when she would come over my house, we, we, we kind of raised each other in a sense. Like mm-hmm. she kind of really taught me a lot about, about fatherhood and, and she, really challenged me just with her being, you know, my daughter. And she taught me a lot about myself, like the good and the bad. And, and it's at the end of the day to see she's a very, very, very good, good kid now, you know, and um, that's the blessing because there's not a man, woo, there's not a manual to a parent, parenthood and with all of my daughters, they're, they're great, but they're all different, you know? 
So God bless Savannah because she she really um, you know instilled a lot of cool things into me. These kids are sharpening your sword, man. I was we were just driving to dinner with me and my wife and my daughter. My daughter's twelve. Mm-hmm. Um, simple thing. We were having a silly conversation about deodorant and deodorant <laughs> scents, and the daughter from the back seat was like, "Mommy, Daddy, how are scents gendered?" And I was like, "She." I, Thought for a second, I was like, you know, inherently peppermint is not a female scent. Mm-hmm. Inherently, sandalwood is not a male scent. It's yeah, we attributed, you know, certain scents to men and women, but inherently they aren't. And I had to look at her. I was like, you know what, baby girl, you're absolutely right. <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> they are not gendered inherently. We have this society has assigned certain smells that was to, to women and men, but. As 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 a scent, rose a ro- vanilla is not a female scent, and I was because mm-hmm. my wife and I were talking about deodorants and how the different smells and baby powder and this that and, and she just from the back listening to two of us was like, but mommy, how how are scents gendered? And I'm like, from the mouths of babes, mm-hmm. <laughs> they That's really they, they do, and 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 you and they teach you that you don't have all the answers when they ask those questions. And you don't want to be like, well, that's just the way it is. But that's pretty much what it boils down to. Because they uh, they want fair answers to their fair questions. And sometimes you're just like, man, uh, that's a good question. And it's just the, that's just the way it is. <laughs> yeah. So when did um, daughter number two come along? Uh, Peyton came. Um, and let me see. I'm getting old. But 2013. Uh, Nunu, what we call her. Uh, Savannah came in 2007. Peyton came. Uh, 20, 2013, man. Mm-hmm. So yeah, she um beautiful as well, man. She's wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Peyton is the uh I'm trying to see how I can word like because you know it's just by default, at least in my my house, we call all our kids crazy. Oh, you're crazy, you know what I'm saying, or whatever. Yeah. But if it's man, she's just very, she's very unique. She's gonna speak her mind. She's uh wild. <laughs> she's the true, she's a Slight, at least in our household, because in her mother's, um, she's the only child. But in our household, she's your your stereotypical middle child fighting for everything when she don't have to fight, but she gonna make it a fight. And I just, I just love that about her. But Peyton's super unique, man. Um, that's my that's my chocolate drop, my beautiful, my beautiful baby Peyton. But she's turned seven here pretty soon in, in July, so she's six now, but she'll be seven real soon. Oh, that's but that's the, that's my free age. spirit right there. That's what makes her a free spirit. I, that's a fun age. I used to well, I, I'm honestly, she's a free spirit in here. Like, um, free spirit, free spirit in the sense that, uh, you know, it, 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 she goes back and forth from being free spirit to hard headed. <laughs> <laughs> so like- I guess that's what we go, we gonna say. But yeah, she's she's gonna ask why. She's gonna do things her way. You're gonna, uh, man. I think she she kind of likes being in the thick of things, but she. You know, she's going to, you know, challenge everything and it's even things that don't don't need to be challenged. But she's super, super unique. And I love I love I love that about Peyton. Like she's the one that always wants to go outside. And I say free spirit, too, because she really is the type that when we're running or we going outside. She'll be the one in the field running and jumping and and saying all kinds of, you know, crazy phrases. And this then the third. But in that way, too, she's really a physical free spirit because she loves to be outside, loves to run and just, you know, loves to experience life. That's awesome. So when three and four are how how much further apart? Three and four, like like, like them. It was funny because the uh, 
me see, three, let me see, one and three are like Delma and Louise. Uh, and three, because three is my, my step, my stepdaughter, uh, Mackenzie. She's like, even time, anytime I talk to people, I never, and it's, and it's great. The one thing I am proud of is I never in my head, it is, I don't even fathom having three daughters. Like I have four, like Mackenzie is, is, is just as much my daughter as any of the other three. So she came here uh, and I inherited a dope child from my wife, you know? And so that's Mackenzie. Mackenzie is 12. So the 12 year old was the third one. And, um, Man, she's she's beautiful, super smart, can dance, and she's uh really really finding her way, man. She's very very beautiful, very into the culture, as the as as the same way my oldest child is. That's why, like uh Peyton and my baby that I'm gonna speak on, Hallie, they like Thelma and Louise <laughs> and and um Mackenzie and and Savannah like Thelma and Louise. They together. They Mackenzie is deep into the culture, you know the TikTok videos and. And just all the stuff she kind of keep us young because anything we don't know, they'll help us on it. Like, oh, well, they're saying this, they're doing this. And that kind of can help my music and things, too, because if you know the dances, you kind of know the wave. I'm always stay on my wave. But just them being engulfed in the culture, they kind of like keep me hip as well. I, I, it's interesting to me that your first and your stepdaughter are close in age. What was that like? Did that make it easier blending the families? You know, because 12 and 14, they're relatively close. Yeah, the only, man, just to be like, if this is a candid podcast, there was no trouble anywhere but with with uh, with, with Peyton's mom. That's another story. But everything mm-hmm. was cool. Like like Mackenzie and, um, Mackenzie and Savannah, they, I remember the first time we went to the movies, it was just, and after that, I remember even Bree at a young age, like, yeah, I just want to go closer and just want to learn. Like, you know, she <laughs> she's a very smart, advanced girl and so she kind of was looking forward to it and so they've been like running buddies ever since a lot to uh me and me and uh my wife dismay because it's like they're great and we love them but them together they like a a powerhouse uh of of young mischief sometimes you know like young stuff or whatever but they love each other and um man so the the you know the toughest part of of, of blending the families that that those are a lot of moving pieces and with me, you know, having to, you know, pick them up and just having certain of certain a uh, few of them on different weekends, you know, those are those are a lot of challenges I face, but that I welcome because you know these are decisions that I made. But just because you made these decisions, that doesn't make life. That doesn't mean that it still makes it hard. It doesn't mean that you complain about it. But certain decisions and certain paths that you take kind of can make your life harder than what it needs to be. You know what I'm saying? But you accept it and you do what you have to do. But one thing I will say, if it's anything that we set out to do that I'm very proud of, is that these girls love each other. And that was the main thing on why I needed, you know, it's just a lot, a lot of room for growth. And, you know, what I'm saying a new marriage and you learn and you, and you do all those things. But the main thing that I want to set out, I wanted a platform where our kids can feel safe, no matter where they were at, where they can feel loved by everybody, where everybody can feel value, where nobody was more important than the other in essence, where it was all a family unit. And they know that, you know, they, they come in this house and no matter what else is going on, like the girls are love, they love each other. And I think we we really have accomplished that. So blended families is tough, but I do, I think I get a lot of reward when I look at them and see them interacting with each other in the way that they do. And it's all love. That's what's up. And the baby, when did the baby come? She came, listen to this. I'm telling you, she's a star, Hallie Star, the middle name, Star is a name. She came and you, 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 if I'm lying, I'm flying. 
August 8th, 2018 at 8.08 a.m. Wow. August 8th, 2018 at 8.08. 8.08. For Break down why 8.08 is significant for you, for people who may not, because I don't know if I talk, touched on that in the intro. Mm-hmm. As a music producer, the 808 is the boom. It's the it's the sub that you hear even in um a bass guitar. That low end, but especially it's a sound. The boom, the, the stuff that really makes beats beats. Our uh, baby girl got all of that numerology up in her um up, up in her birthday, and she has not disappointed. Like she is um she's everything. She almost at this point she the glue. In essence, in, in some way, to the family, man. She, um, I don't know somebody that young, but that aware, that family oriented, like just knowing the pieces and how they fit into her life and welcoming that. She's, um, you could just tell that she got it, you know, as far as just her inquisitive nature, and you know, she she's messing around with guitar here and there. Anytime I have in the studio, she's hitting on pads or whatever. Um, she the type. She could be a track star. She could be a bass player. She could be a producer. It's some Hallie, Hallie, uh, yeah, she's she's great, man. She she's really been a blessing to us. And you named one of your production companies. I forget eight oh eight. It was the eight oh eight. The eight oh eights. Yeah, the eight oh eight studio. The how you know that? How you was that a Google? Because that's an I old. Look, I do I do my homework. I do my homework, bro. Hey, that was- <laughs> Yeah, that's 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 old school. But yeah, the eight oh, I did. I I named man. Our first studio was called the eight oh eight studio. So I'm telling you, Hallie, Hallie got it. Not just it's not just owner. It's inner, and it's even in just even in her birthday. And I named it after my um my grandmother. It's my my mother's mother, but she's the most beautiful, just just nicest person in the world. And what's funny is that she got to meet her. She hasn't seen her since she was born, but. She was flying back to Seattle and somehow her flight, she was able to come up to the hospital and see her namesake that day. You know what I'm saying? And and she got to fly out. And that was the last day she was going to be there. It's like, God, you know, he, he speaks to uh, me in dates, times and in, in, in significance, like stuff like that. So that, that was a cool thing. I love it. I love it. So what was it like having that? clan during this past pandemic in the past year trying to manage all these it was a lot it was it was it's always a lot like i don't care how much you (laughs) it's it's nothing and i don't think my thing is i never complain because like because it's the life you chose and the life you you made and so you just do your best with it but just always having to account you know, you know, of course, that's the job of fatherhood and motherhood. So you're not complaining. But I don't think you got to account for the time you're dropping the baby off. You know, I'm talking about during the pandemic and just, you know, all the way to now, you know, it's just uh, a constant state of accountability, you know, not just in your career, because my wife is an entrepreneur as well. But, um, man, it was it was it was it was a lot during COVID, but it, it wasn't too much different than it was any any other time. You know, when you're dealing with kids, you know, it was a. A little bit extra because I think it was an adjustment to the homeschool that they, you know, they were having to do, et cetera, which was some kind which was perks in some ways because, you know, you didn't have to, you know, take them to a lot of different places. But that also brings up cabin fever. And, you know, that's the first thing kids say is, oh, this is boring. So especially if they're not going to school, don't have nothing, have nothing to do. Um, you, you're tasked with entertaining them 
when we when we grew up, we entertained ourselves, but that's another story. Um, so th- that was kind of like some adjustments that we made, but just in general on the day to day, even now that um, COVID is, is it over? Is it done? I don't know. What, I, don't <laughs> I don't know. know. Like, I'm still you know. moving a little bit cautiously. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> so, but even now that I guess, especially in Texas, we opened up so long ago that that, that speaks to the point of the other stuff they doing, just a lot of flunkies running, inmates running an asylum. Uh, but man, it, it, it's just, like I say, it's, it's, it's an adjustment in general, even financially and everything, because, you know, you, we, we both do well, you do your thing, but being, um, making money, it's a difference between making single person money and making four kids money. You know, that's different kind of <laughs> like yep. people, they can drive around in certain things. You'd be like, oh, but you know, my child support payment is the same as your Tesla, you know? <laughs> so it's like, you know, it's just little stuff like that and just kind of coming to grips with that and understanding and understanding that if you want to live the life you want to live with four kids, you got to do a little more. You know what I'm saying? Not just financially, but even um, spreading that time around individually to them because I uh, I have two kids in the household with me and the other two, you know, I I, I you know, I'm, I'm slated to pick them up at certain times and I try to get them as much as I can, talk to them as much as I can. So it's a lot. It's a lot going on. We have, I'm telling our life is hectic, but I thank the Lord because I think, you know, a lot of people, I don't know, they would they would have folded, but we, 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 we are folding and we getting better every day. And it's a lot of stuff that people don't see. They see, you know, the, the positive things you, you know, post when you get a placement and when your movie comes out or when you get a plaque. And then they see the pretty pictures, but they don't see all the stuff that goes in from all parties into just, you know, making it work. It's it's a it's a whole lot, but it's a blessing. It's a it's, it's a blessing that I'm tasked with. What was your relationship like with your father? Man, my daddy, um, the older I got, the closer we got him and my mother. Uh, thank God for them. That, that I think they've been married close to 50 years. So that was cool to see that um, my mother, my daddy. He uh, I take after him a lot of ways because in the quote, quote, real world, like, you know, he's the quote, he's the man in essence. You know, he's a you know mechanic. Everybody knows JL businessman does his thing, works his fingers to the bone, does anything for his family. But, you know, he came to the house and I guess he just worked so hard. He just be, you know, most time because that's what I saw was the house. He just be there chilling, quiet. And then that's when my mama would just do her thing. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Which was everything. And he was just quiet, cool. And sometimes, you know, coming up. Like he was the person that led through action. Like he didn't, you know, I can probably remember one time maybe when I was young, he told me he loved me, but I knew he loved me. I never had daddy issues or nothing because, I mean, he's working all the time. And even coming up, you know, in those younger 20s where you were super broke and you needed something, he always answered the phone for his kids and he was always there. He was rock solid. But, you know, um, he was just, you know, quiet and didn't really, um, you know, impose his will internally inside the house. So, you know, my mama got a lot of the brunt of that. But the older I got, I realized how like we were in a lot of ways. And I learned um, learned a lot from him and learned some. I learned a whole lot from him, especially, you know, business wise, being a man, taking care of things wise. But what I was tasked to learn was, you know, affection and other things, excuse me, affection and other little things and stuff that I'm still learning because he did the best that he could. But, you know, whatever was lacked by, you know, him, and my mother, you, you got to be thankful for everything that they did bring. But you know, whatever was lacked, you got to kind of learn even as an adult because we never stopped learning. But my mother was, uh, now my father was, was and is wonderful and I'm thankful to still have him. I love you too, baby. That's my boo. Oh. I'm yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you mentioned when you first found out you were going to have your first daughter, 
your mother mm-hmm. had some feelings about it. How did your father feel? My daddy is internally, he probably wasn't tripping. And he wasn't tripping. My, my daddy inside that house, it's just whatever feeling my mama has is just what he has to go with. Mm-hmm. It's just, and so that's the pro and the kind. Like he's done so much, he's been there so much, but it's just, you know, with times where it's just like, you know, everybody can grow and nobody's perfect, but you know, in those times, it's nothing. You can be quiet, but you still can impose your will the proper way. It was it was times where I feel, just to be totally honest, you know, in that nobody's perfect. He could have stepped in and was like, hey, we're not going to go to the hospital with our son. You know, and you know, I mean, and I may be talking too much, but anyway. But um, <laughs> but at the same time, it's just, you know, just to be totally honest, like um, his his will is just whatever. whatever however my mama flowed is kind of how my father flowed. You know, you just and that's just kind of what it was and is, you know, and I don't, I don't fault him for that. I mean, you know, you could, but I don't. I just know I, that's the one thing that maybe, you know, I'm trying to get stronger in my relationships is you don't have to just be the super will imposer in that, in that way. But when but sometimes you really do need to, you know, speak up on certain things and not just externally in your business, but internally. You got to meet people where they are, man. Yeah, um, you do. So bringing it back to the movie. Um, how do you talk to your children, maybe your older ones, about some of the themes you discussed? You specifically mentioned the killing of Botham Jean um, and Tatiana Jefferson, uh, raising four Black girls. How do you have those conversations with them about what happens in the news to us? The cool thing, because... Um, Peyton's six. She's not really super there yet. Of course, my two-year-old, not really. The cool thing is, you know, uh, my 12-year-old, she kind of understands and she she feels, you know, what I talk about. And um, she has kind of more of a, a growing phase in view. My um my 14-year-old, she, I think I led her by example in some ways and maybe she got some other examples, but she kind of feels the way I feel about a lot of stuff. And I'm I'm happy to say because I didn't force it down her throat. She just saw how I and I'm I don't I'm not even trying to take all the credit for it, but I'm just speaking in the way that I conducted myself, the way I view things, the way I view police brutality, the way I view being proud to be black, et cetera, or whatever. I just feel that my 14-year-old has adopted a lot of those views. And she's the main one, her and my 12-year-old that I would talk to her about it. So right. it's almost like I say a little something and they, and then it's not even that I prompt them to agree with me. I just say my whatever. And specifically my 14-year-old, she was like, yeah. And because of this, it's this, and it's this. It's, it's like she she knows and she feels it and she understands. And I didn't like force it upon her. I didn't make her feel this way. I don't know. I think she, I think that's one of those things that was a lead by example. She saw my views, she saw how I conducted myself in the views, why I had them, why I make the music I make, why I make the movies I make. And she uh I think, you know, sometimes parents will do as I say, not as I do, but in that she saw that it was no no hypocritical nature in my feelings and how I felt about these, you know, these political issues. So that's what kids do. A lot of times we tell kids things, but if they see contradictions, they may go another way. And maybe she's like that in other ways. But when it comes to my views on um, being proud to be black, when it comes to the views of, you know, blacks getting disproportionately, you know, arrested and treated awfully, et cetera, and the way things are, like um, my older kids kind of, they rock with me on that. And um, I don't have to talk to them too much because anytime I'm, I say something, they they interject and, you know, they typically agree. Have you had to have that talk with the oldest yet about what to do if you get pulled over 
with the by the police or what happens if you get stopped on the street by the police? I haven't. Um, mm-hmm. I have subtly, you know what I'm saying? I need to thank you for reminding me. I need to have that talk. She has she isn't driving yet, but just she's such a good student and um so deserving that I'm sure she'll be within at least two years, she's gonna be driving, she's gonna be out more. I'm glad that she's a homebody video game playing girl. We worried about other things, but you know, we need to kind of really understand that the age is coming soon. And even as a black woman, you know, you still can have some of those same things happen to you. So that that conversation needs to have happen. And what I want to have that balance with telling her not to fear anything, to stand your ground in proper places to know who you are. But we also have to also be realistic and not try your best not to invite certain things, but also know that even you can be the most upstanding black citizen in the world and things just get invited to you for the color of skin. So it's talking about all of those facets. Hey, fear nothing because, you know, that's what we're empowered to do. At the same time, be smart, which is also a slight contradiction to fear nothing. But then it's also, you know, you know what I mean? So it's just like the, the plight that us as black people have to go through, you know? And speaking of plight, so how would you suggest parents um, discuss your film with their children who are of age to consume it? Man, I think uh, even before we got on Amazon Prime, before USA Today was speaking of the film, even before all these things happened, um, people were like, hey, this needs to be put in school's curriculum, you know, just stuff like that. So the discussion, and I really think because music reaches the kids at that level, I think the film discusses itself. Like, I... um, I almost think that you can discuss it, but I think once it's watched, it's, it's more to be experienced than discussed because I think that's some of the problems now. And that's why I made the film so that it can be more of an experience. You can have discussions afterwards on what you felt, some of the artistic elements, but I think that we're having a lot of discussions and not enough experiences because with experiences, which is what I think you do with um, It's a Wonderful Plight, you can feel it a little bit more, whether you're white, black or whatever, And it's a lot of the words that, you know, we're saying all the right words. We know the deal. We know the facts. They're right there. It's common knowledge. But um, not to be too, you know, clever with it. Uh, I'm trying to answer your question, but I really think that it's a wonderful plight. The film should be shown um, in schools, even even elementary, hopefully, but middle school to high schools. It can be shown there and it is to be experienced. And then the discussions come after. Mm. Excellent. Well, Justin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast to talk about your brilliant film. And Man, thank you for having me. And your your lovely daughters and happy Father's Day early. Um, thank you. I, I hope you get the big piece of chicken and much, much more. You know, watch this, watch this, watch this. I'm going to show you how important Father's Day. When is Father's Day? Sunday. Mind you. I kind of knew. I figured it, but I'm, I've been so much on this film. Nobody is making a fuss about it. So I don't even know when it is. Like nobody's like, it's not. So maybe I can, and it's all good. We used to that. I probably get some boxes or something. I didn't even know it was this Sunday. No boxers, no mugs. We we protested. I I don't think, and it's okay. I don't know if I got nothing for man. It's all right. But um, I'm thankful, man. And I really, even outside of this interview, just it, it was a wonderful interview, you know, talking about the things that matter most, you know, my music and my, my daughters and my music rather, uh, but thank you for real, for real, like for your contributions to this podcast and for your contributions in that magazine, because it's a blessing. Like you don't know how many people or maybe maybe you do, but you inspired a lot of people. And I'm one of those people like you re- that magazine. I still got them. They some 
but, you know what I mean? And, and that was big for you to do that. Like you were, you would forever be etched in the uh, the hip hop and producer community for that. And um, I'm glad that your uh, your new endeavors are, are dope as well. Thank you, man. I really appreciate that. This has been Fathers Who Bother with Justin L. Rhodes, a.k.a. J. Rhodes. And this is Jerry Barrow, your host. And I'll see you guys on the next one. Thank you. Peace. Peace. If you're enjoying Fathers Who Bother, please make sure to hit that subscribe button and follow us on Instagram at Fathers Who Bother and Twitter at Fathers Who Be. Thanks.